Greetings, church. My name is Jason. Please meet me in the book of Romans, chapter 2. We're continuing to look at this great letter that Paul wrote to the first century church in Rome, uh, right before 60 uh, AD, about 57 AD. And so we're going to look today at Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. So let me read those verses for us and then pray and ask for God's help to understand his word and to obey it, to be hearers and doers uh, of the word. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Pray with me. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we are, are here again. We, we are gathering as your people. Uh, we're gathering in groups. We're gathering around your word. We're, we're gathering um, in this unique season, unique moment in history and so we want to acknowledge the God of history in the middle of this. We want to acknowledge the one who holds all things together by the word of your power. We want to submit to you, uh, regardless of what our week was like. Father, I pray for those whose week has been heavy, challenging. Perhaps new fears have surfaced for them and, and challenges have come their way that they didn't expect. Would you encourage them today from your word? I pray for those who are incredibly encouraged. Perhaps they receive new news or a new job or a new relationship or, or some fresh discovery of your grace. Father, I pray you'd protect them from pride. I pray that you would keep them humble. I pray that for my sisters. I pray that for my brothers. I pray that for us, your people. And, and what a joy to know that you do all of that. You speak to all of us through your word. And so we, we come eager. We come expectant. We come because you are a God who speaks and you speak life. And so God, fill us up with life today. Fill us up with joy today. Fill us up with your goodness and your grace that we might be useful in your hands for your kingdom purposes. Help me to this end today, God, and help all of us. Father, respond rightly to your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said Amen. Well, last week we left off considering how we presume upon God's kindness. Specifically, we assume his grace uh, that we, when we assume his grace, we're not led to vulnerability and confession and repentance, but rather we're led to something that we simply called spiritual entitlement, believing that we are due these things. So today, though, we want to consider we need to consider two other presumptions that Paul had in mind in verse 4. This is why we're reviewing and looking at verse 4 again. That Paul mentions, which I think specifically give us clarity about God's kindness, to understand, to comprehend his kindness even more. In, in other words, Paul describes two ways in verse 4 that God is kind to us. And each ought to lead us, according to verse 5, ought to lead us to, or rather the latter half of verse four, to, to lead us to repentance. So let's look again at Romans chapter two, verse four. Look at it with me. 
Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Before we consider these two specific ways that God is kind to us as his people, we should note that Paul speaks about God's kindness as riches. Did you notice that? That's incredibly important and certainly noteworthy. The word riches usually means material wealth, but here it's obviously metaphorical. And this, this bounty of God's spiritual treasury is not limited to his kindness. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9, verse 23, that God is rich in glory. And Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, tells us that God is rich in grace. God does not just have a little bit of glory. He does not just have just enough grace to get us by. The Lord is not limited in his kindness. I hope you're ready to hear this today. He, he's overflowing with an exhaustible amount, an inexhaustible amount and volume of glory and grace and kindness. God is rich in kindness. And because God is resplendent in kindness, Paul can be clear about the ways in which he has been kind towards us, his readers, those who have been chosen by God. See, kindness is a foundational idea of who God is. It's one of his foundational qualities. It's his core goodness. God's kindness is demonstrated, Paul tells us in verse four, in two particular ways, in his forbearance and in his patience. But of course, we need to ask, what do these mean? What what does it mean that he is forbearing? Or what is forbearance? And what is his patience? And what are these, especially in relationship to his kindness? Let's consider forbearance and then we'll look more exactly at at, uh, his patience. Forbearance is God's graciously delayed consequence. Forbearance is God's graciously delayed consequence. It literally means a kind of truce. One writer put it this way, that forbearance is when God does not punish the sinner immediately after he sins. He waits to exact an aspect of his holy justice upon human beings when he has every right to do so immediately. He delays bringing a righteous justice that he would be completely accurate and on point in bringing immediately. He delays and he waits. Think about the beginning of the human story in the Garden of Eden, our first parents, Adam and Eve, are told by God that they may eat of any tree of the garden, any fruit of the garden except for one. The Lord tells them in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, you may surely eat of the tree uh, of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's a clear rule. There's a clear consequence. But Adam and Eve ate from that tree. They ate that particular fruit that they were told, do not eat on that day, you will surely die. And what happens? Perhaps surprisingly, they did not immediately die. Their death would come, but not right away. Instead, they're clothed in forgiveness and an animal skin. Someone, something took their place. 
This story of Adam and Eve and the consequence that Adam and Eve endured is then made into doctrine by Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. This means, like Adam and Eve, if you breathe after you sin, you have experienced the forbearance of God, his graciously delayed consequence. If you take a breath, my brother, my sister, after you have sinned, you are experiencing his kindness through forbearance. And from the beginning, God has been demonstrating this richness, this wealth, the riches of his kindness toward his creation by way of his forbearance. How about patience? Patience is God's merciful, long-tempered nature. Patience is God's merciful, long-tempered nature. He can bear with us in the face of disappointment and opposition for a long time. And he puts up with a lot, doesn't he? He puts up with a lot. And I can't help but immediately acknowledge how marvelous this idea of God is, particularly in the middle of what we are in the middle of. See, as a COVID parent, I'm increasingly familiar with my ever-depreciating long-temperedness. I have, the longer this thing goes on, the shorter a fuse I have. I do not have patience. I require it. And so this is a marvelous idea of God, particularly as I juxtapose his character next to mine. You apply a little bit of pressure to me and my patience wears thin very, very quickly. Thanks be to God. He is rich in kindness, which he demonstrates through his patience. Paul actually himself wrote about his personal need for God's patience. When he was instructing his young protege, Timothy, hear this from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 and 16. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy, Paul says. I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, that is the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is incredibly vulnerable and clear about his sin and his brokenness and his need. And because he is so, he is able to celebrate and relish in and enjoy the extraordinary patience and kindness of God. He recognizes God's kindness towards him through patience because he knows how broken and evil and rebellious he was. See, Jesus demonstrates this perfect patience by not giving Paul what by his sin Paul deserved. That's mercy, that's, that's kindness, that's patience. He continues to demonstrate his kindness to us, his people, in the very same way. This was not just a special gift for Paul. This is who God is with all of his people. You see, God has always been the God who graciously repeats himself. He has always been the God of multiple second chances. This is his kindness to us through his patience. Isn't that good news that God is patient with you? 
that God delays his consequence for your good, that God is long-tempered, he is merciful towards you by way of his patience. He is so incredibly good to us. And so we say that God is rich in kindness. His kindness is demonstrated when, when he delays consequence. And as he continues to delay consequence, for our sin. And in the middle of that, we sin some more and we continue to learn holiness. This is the space provided by his forbearance and patience. And he demonstrates it over and over again. God is kind. God is forbearing. God is patient. However, we must be so careful not to mistake forbearance for forgiveness. We must be so careful not to mistake forbearance for forgiveness, nor patience for passivity. See, forbearance is not forgiveness, and patience is not passivity. All of this divine kindness is not evidence that spiritual amends has taken place. That would be what Paul describes as presuming God's kindness, or what we've suggested as spiritual entitlement. We must be so careful not to make these mistakes. See, God's kindness towards sinners is not evidence forgiveness has taken place. It's evidence that God desires repentance, not condemnation. His kindness towards us is not evidence that it's all worked out and figured out, and therefore we don't need to come with contrition and humility towards him. It is evidence that he is creating space and opportunity for us to do so, for us to repent his kindness, then, is, is this pathway for repentance and forgiveness, healing and reconciliation. Look at the latter half of verse 4 with me. So, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? And here it is, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to, what's that word, church? Repentance. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So this is the space that's provided for us by the nature of God and his kindness towards humanity, us as people. He, he provides space for repentance through forbearance and patience. And it's not just space, but the effect that his kindness is meant to have on us, the effect his forbearance and patience is meant to have on us is not spiritual entitlement, it's actually repentance. See, before we can fully understand God's kindness, of how his kindness does this, how it works this in us, this, this repentance, how it takes this sort of efficacy in our life, if you will, we first must understand repentance itself. Because in, in my own life and in my years in ministry, this is a constantly, a consistently misunderstood word or just a completely neglected word and practice. And the most important thing then that I can say about repentance is that repentance is a grace. Repentance is a grace. We briefly mentioned this last week, but repentance is, a work, is not a work of human agency. We do not repent on our own volition, by our own will, by our own emotion, by our own power. Rather, we are drawn by God towards contrition, for sin, and given the gift of repentance by God. That's what the Jewish people in Acts 11 
understood and recognized. Hear how they respond in Acts 11, verse 18. They glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. God grants repentance to the Jew and the Gentile. And one theologian explains that repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. This grace is a holistic transformation. Repentance then is not the sentiment of sorry. Repentance is not the sentiment of sorry, church. It is the reconstitution of righteous living. Therefore, it must be a gift of grace, not a work of the flesh. It is our personal will which has got us into spiritual trouble. Our work, our effort, our will, our volition, our desire, our power, that's the issue. Therefore, we cannot reframe the issue, can't reframe the problem as the solution. My will, my work, my effort got me into spiritual trouble, and therefore it will not get me out. Repentance is God's kindness as well because it is a gift of his grace. This is not simply true. In our initial story and moment of conversion, repentance and the gift of repentance is not only true in our salvation, but it animates. It's it's this power in our sanctification as well. It's always a gift. And repentance is always necessary. Repentance is always a gift, and it is always the necessary habit of the follower of Jesus. Martin Luther, 16th century German theologian, said this in his, in his first of his famous 95 theses. He, he, he wrote this, that when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. All of life is repentance. That's because in this life, our sin is tenacious, but God's grace and kindness are more tenacious still. Did you, did you hear this, church? Did you hear this good news today? Our sin is persistent. It's tenacious. It continues to come back and haunt us, but God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is more than enough. God's grace is more tenacious and persistent still. See, we always have a need to repent, and God is willing to give and receive our repentance. So what ought this look like? What does a life of repentance look like? How can we be sure that God's kindness is animating our life and not spiritual entitlement? How can we make sure that that ultimately at the center of our motivations is not myself, but it's a response to ultimately God's lordship in my life, his control of my life, and as Martin Luther even describes him, that he is my master, that he is my Lord. I, I think what it comes down to is, in, in a very practical way, is our understanding of repentance. So how can we be sure that it's God's, that's God's kindness and not spiritual entitlement? Well, I cannot improve upon Thomas Watson's pathway of repentance that he lays out in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance. Watson was a 17th century English preacher who, who viewed uh, repentance, I think, in a really helpful way, like a medicine for the soul a medication with six 
key and necessary ingredients. And I'd like to walk through all six of those. Thomas Watson determined six necessary ingredients for what he described as true repentance. The first is sight of sin. The second is sorrow of sin. And the third, confession of sin. The fourth, shame of for sin. Fifth, hatred for sin. And finally, sixth, turning from sin. That ultimately he saw that all of these comprised true repentance. This is a prescription for, for our ailing souls that, that brings life, that brings wholeness, and brings joy in Christ. And, it, and it's God's kindness that leads us here. First, Watson offers to us the first step, first ingredient of true repentance is sight of sin. We first need to see and acknowledge sin as sin. We're not talking about a bad habit. We're not talking about just something that we're wrestling through or trying to figure out. We are talking about sin and we're talking about particular sins. We're not speaking about them generally. We are asking for sight, for vision to understand them particularly. And this is a result of God's kindness because it is only his truth. And in order to see and name sin specifically is a gift of God's kindness because it's a result of his truth and his holiness, which provide the spiritual light that exposes sin from the dark recesses of our heart. See, it's, it's what happened uh, and what Jesus said to the apostle Paul on the Damascus road. He said, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, that they may receive forgiveness of sin. See, our eyes need to be opened. We must first see our sin. God help us. Secondly, Watson offers sorrow for sin. Once we've seen our sin, we, we should be grieved by it. Watson said this sorrow for sin is not superficial. It is a holy agony. Church, do you have a holy agony over your sin, no matter the size and scope, the consistency, how long you have been sinning in that way, how, how, how irregularly or regularly you've sinned in this way, or do you have a holy agony? I love that phrase for your sin. Zechariah gives us a vivid picture of this sorrow, speaking the words of God. It says this in Zechariah 12, verse 10, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, and this is God speaking. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly. Even such agony and sorrow, even these tears that we would shed over our sin is a product of God's kindness because such grief over sin only comes in relationship and only in a context of love. See, we weep over our sin when we realize that every sin is a violation of the covenant, the relationship and the love and affection we are meant to have with God. We need to have sorrow for our sin. Thirdly, confession of sin. In our lament, we speak with humble specificity about our sin and we're clear, we, we, we name the things that we have done or we have named the things that we have failed to do. Confession is commanded uh, throughout scripture, but, but too often I think it's a novel and even cute idea within the American church. 
In other words, it is prescribed, it's commanded, it's the normative disposition of the Christian heart in the scriptures. And yet we, we have somehow begun to believe that confession is only something that some people do when they have done something truly wrong and are being held to account. See, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31, Paul reveals why confession is such a gracious gift of God's kindness. He writes, if we judged ourselves truly, in other words, if we saw our sin, we had sorrow over our sin, and we confessed our sin, we would not be judged. Hear, hear this, confession is a safeguard for God's people from further judgment. It, it steals all of the power from darkness when we step into the light. Who, who can bring a charge, the scriptures say, against God's elect? When we have confessed and lived in the light, when we are vulnerable before him, no accusation can harm us. No weapon formed against me will prosper because ultimately I am living in the light. I'm walking in the light. We are confessing our sin. See, one way of thinking about this is that when we are in the habit of confessing sin, we are protected from any demonic accusation because we have already gone to the one whom we have sinned against, God himself, and he has already, by God's grace, forgiven us, loved us, restored us to right thinking and right living. See, we must confess sin. It is a gracious gift of God's kindness. So we see sin, we're sorrowful for sin, we confess sin, and fourthly, we have shame for sin. To be sure, we ought not to beat ourselves up or be beaten down and destroyed by our sin. We're made in the image of God. We, we are precious to him. But scripture does not teach, or rather does teach us, that part of repentance is understanding and even feeling ashamed of our sin and foolishness. See, and like the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15, uh, Watson says that repentance ought to cause, or rather causes, a holy bashfulness. We ought to be aware that sin fully exposes us. We are spiritually naked before a holy God when we are in sin. Even this, though, is a kind of kindness to us because shame creates even a physical dissonance which wakes up our souls to its feebleness. We ought to be ashamed of our sin, of what we have done and what we have failed to do that is out of step with the righteousness of God. Fifthly, we should have a hatred for sin. See, shame, even through confession, leads to a disdain for sin. And that's the build here. We, from seeing to sorrow to confession to shame to hatred, we're walking down this pathway of, uh, toward true repentance. God desires for us then in this to have a holy indignation, a holy disdain toward anything which is contrary to his character and to his word or damages our relationship with him. Hear how Ezekiel's words tie shame and hatred together as it relates to our sin and repentance. He says, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Even this is a kindness of God, which continues to foster repentance because it gives us a vision of God's heart. 
We are not merely meant in, in, our, in our heart and our affection for God to love the things he loves, but to hate the things he hates. And God hates sin. And when we regularly hate sin, rightly, appropriately, we foster a heart which beats in rhythm with the spirit of God. So part of true repentance is hating sin. And I think what this begins to do is that when we sin, we are teaching and we are learning, we're growing, or rather God is teaching us to, to ultimately hate sin and, and the, the challenges and the evils and all the things associated with it and, and, and to love his will and to love his way. See, when we cultivate a righteous hatred towards sin, we begin to rightly begin to enjoy and to long for the things of God, and we begin to know the difference better. Lastly, in Watson's ingredients here for true repentance, turning from sin. Once we've worn the path of repentance from seeing to hating our sin, we are now ready to be reformed in our behaviors. And it's important to see the kind of care and time that Watson takes to often our own abbreviated version of what repentance. If we have any view of repentance, it's probably just to, to turn from our ways. And this is, this is good, but it's, it's incomplete. Watson takes five different ingredients or key steps before even getting to this moment of turning from sin, because it's not just about our will. It's not just about us turning around and, and doing something differently. See, this process of repentance and, and taking time to do this works healing and transformation down into our souls and leaves this lasting difference that's not simply in our action, but even in our taste and our diet for sin as well, which in turn changes character, not just behavior. It transforms who we are, not just what we do. We only truly turn from sin after we have seen and wept over and confessed and felt ashamed and hatred for our sin. See, what's taking place is this wonderful biblical idea through repentance is that in order to live differently, you have to be different. You, act, you can't just say, wake up one day, I'm going to live differently. I'm going to walk away from sin and start embracing righteousness. I need to be made new. You need to be made new. And those who have been made different can live differently. And this is the pathway that repentance takes us on. Again, Ezekiel helps us. Therefore, Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. This then is the fullest expression of repentance, of true repentance. We turn from sin and we turn towards God and we live righteously again. Let's be absolutely clear. Let's be absolutely clear, church. Please hear me in this. We are not talking about feeling sorry. We are not talking about trying harder. We are not talking about appeasing God's emotions. We are talking about being transformed by the kindness of God. We are talking about submitting to the will of the Heavenly Father. We are talking about loving and hating what the Son, Jesus Christ, loves and hates. We are talking about becoming more submissive to the Holy Spirit. See, when it comes to sin, feeling sorry only and trying harder only, these things merely produce death. 
Only repentance in response to God's kindness leads to life. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In in other words, a, a worldly grief that produces death is just constantly, consistently sinning and sinning and sinning. There's no transformation. There's no life. There's no wholeness. There's no remedy. There's no reconciliation. There's no peace. See, we're not talking about sorry. We're talking about repentance. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Forbearance is not forgiveness. Patience is not passivity. Rather, both forbearance and patience provide a merciful delay for just consequences, which makes repentance possible. God's consequence that he will bring are just and right and good, and yet his forbearance and his patience, he affords us the opportunity to repent. Since God delays our consequence or what we deserve, he provides a way for repentance that leads to healing and reconciliation. See, God delays consequence for our good. This is his kindness. But please notice, I trust this has been clear from Paul's words in Romans chapter two, but but I, I trust by God's grace and my own explanation, exposition of it. See, God's consequences are merely delayed. They are not eradicated. They have not been exacted. God's consequence is delayed. They have not been satisfied. God is kind, but he also remains just and the righteous judge. Let's read again verse 4 and now along with verse 5 in Romans chapter 2. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Verse five, but because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day, or rather on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God is kind, but a day of wrath is coming. A day, Paul says, when God's righteous judgments will be revealed, or God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In other words, one day, God's forbearance and patience will run out. Please let that settle in. One day, God's forbearance and God's patience will run out. And on the day that his forbearance and his patience run out, He will be no less kind and he will be no less God. He will be just as God on this day as he is today. Specifically, Paul is speaking about an event, an event in the future when a reality of God will be fully expressed, fully disclosed in history. The reality, that reality is his justice on full display. God's judgment will be total But this day of judgment or the day of the Lord or the day of wrath is really a day of revelation. In other words, what is true yet hidden or delayed today will come fully to bear on this day of wrath. It is just as true now, but it will be fully revealed. That's Paul's point in 2 Corinthians or rather 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 5 through 8. 
This, he says, is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and the inflaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In other words, God will no longer delay. His forbearance and patience will run out. Consequence will no longer be delayed. Divine justice will be fully revealed. This is the day that is coming. A day is coming when the forbearance of God will be no more. A day is coming when the patience of God will be no more. But on that same day, hear this, oppression will cease. On that same day, suffering will be no more. Tears will be wiped away. The day of wrath and judgment is a day when the fullness of God's utter kindness will be exhibited just as much as his justice will be put on display. His full moral purity will be revealed and bring about his eternal purposes and plans at just the right time, at just the right moment, and through just the right man, Jesus Christ. See, what we're talking about is the second coming of Christ. We are talking about Jesus coming back. Oh, can I tell you about a day when Jesus is coming back to bring full justice and full kindness, full order and full joy, Full judgment and yet full grace. On that day, all shall be well for those who are in Christ. See, here's what Paul is telling us today. When we live a life of repentance, regularly walking this road, regularly taking the spiritual medication of repentance, the day of the Lord is when we eagerly anticipate. We long for it. Because the realities of Christ and the realities of the coming kingdom and the coming age are the realities we are doing our very best by God's spirit to live within now. And so we look forward to the fullness of all of that. But if we are spiritually entitled and presume upon God's kindness and do not repent, that day will be a day, look at verse five, of stored up wrath. Of stored up wrath being unleashed upon all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of humanity. So, a question that we all ought to consider and not presume we know the answer is simply how ought we be assured of a joy, a joyful expectation of the day of wrath, of the day of the Lord, and not an expectation of terror. Well, let's look again at verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul is explaining the result of a person, the implications of a person who presumes upon God's kindness. Wrath is storing up. This is, an, this is an ominous and heavy picture, one we would want to quickly walk past, and yet, yet we cannot. 
What Paul is saying is that for those of us who live spiritually entitled lives, presuming upon God's grace, presuming his forbearance will not run out, presuming his patience is not only deserved, but it is inexhaustible and we'll always have it forever. When we presume these things, wrath is being stored up. But Paul also explains that the foundation of this person is a hard and impenitent heart. So church, here's the question for us today, or rather a series of questions that we must allow to sort of excavate deep down within our souls. Do you have a hard heart? Church, do you have an impenitent heart? Church, another way of thinking about this is how the theologian Dave Chappelle simply asks, do you have a brittle spirit? Is your hard heart, is it impenitent? Let's take time to consider both. A heart that is hard and impenitent is the opposite of a heart which repents. It's the opposite of repentance. With an ancient Hebrew consciousness in the Greek language, the heart was not merely about the emotions as as it often is described in the English-speaking world. The heart instead communicated the essence of the inner life of a person, their emotions, their thoughts, their will. It's all of that. It's a a comprehensive term of who a person truly is. So Paul is not talking about someone who lacks emotions, right? The hard and impenitent heart is not one who lacks emotions, but someone who refuses God's authority at the deepest level of their inner being. Biblically, then, we are speaking about a place where sin resides, the heart. Paul's already told us this in Romans 1 verse 21 when he said they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Sin is in our hearts. This is what makes our hearts hard and impenitent. Sin. Sin makes your heart hard. Sin makes your heart impenitent. So let's consider both of them separately. Thinking in terms of this type of heart which rejects and refuses God. So first, the heart of heart refuses righteous judgment. Or let's just be straight. Paul is talking about someone who is stubborn. Think about this. Someone whose heart is hardened refuses to see and or be grieved by their sin. They are therefore unable to confess sin because they are unwilling to be told that they have sin in their heart. Let me bring this as close to home as possible. When you are alone with God, when you're alone with the Lord, When you are with your group and and perhaps you are moving around the Zoom screen, uh, taking prayer requests and confessing sin, when you have personal conflict, in, in any of these particular moments, you may be tempted to quickly do an inventory of your life and say, well, I, I don't have anything to confess. I have, I have nothing to confess. And in a momentary consideration, you and I may truly be unable to find any sin or any particular sin that we need to bring into the life into the light. If that's the case, especially if that is happening over and over again, that when you consider if there's sin in your life, you come back and have no, nothing to report. If this continues to happen, we have to ask a different question. See, not is there sin, but rather God, show me what sin is in my heart. It's not a question of if, but a question of what. You see, the hard heart never asks for understanding. It never asks to be broken and shattered in holy agony over sin. Therefore, the hard heart 
fails to see and to be sorrowful over sin. The result is a heart which is convinced and even calcifies into this presumption, believing they are freed from the iniquities that plague other people. This is what led Paul's Jewish readers and even us to become judgmental of those at the end of chapter one who were doing so many lawless and very clearly sinful things. See, the hard heart does not repent. It does not confess sin and it becomes very judgmental. The impenitent heart refuses change. See, the hard heart refuses righteous judgment and the impenitent heart refuses change. Or let's just be clear about this. This is someone who is not teachable. This takes a step beyond stubborn or stubborn refusal to consider God's righteousness. This word describes the person at the end of chapter one, someone who knows their sin and knows what is right, knows what is wrong, and even understands the consequences of their sin, but fails to seek reform, fails to seek change. See, following the pathway of Watson's ingredients of repentance, someone whose heart is impenitent feels no shame. And when we do not feel shame, we neither learn to hate our sin, nor turn away from our sin and turn towards God. We've looked at this over the past few weeks. This spiritual apathy is a self-fulfilling disposition. The heart that does not feel the need to repent of sin will not feel the need to repent of sin. When we don't ask God to break our hearts, ask God to change us and transform us, ask him to, to teach us to be sorrowful, to hate our sin. When we're not inviting these things, they will not take place. So the impenitent heart does not repent, nor does it confess sin. Underneath this hardness and underneath this impenitence, I think it's really important to ask, what what does this say? What does this reveal about my view of God? What's revealed is a belief that God's kindness will not run out, nor that his judgment is something that's terrifying to us. It's something we are ambivalent towards. Let me just say, This kind of relationship with God, this kind of way of thinking is not how a Christian thinks. And with all the grace I can possibly muster to persist in spiritual apathy and disregard and hardness of heart towards God and his will leads to destruction. It leads to destruction in, in perhaps minor ways now, but certainly eternal ways in the day of wrath. Meaning, when we feel like this, especially for prolonged periods of time, a kind of apathy towards God, an apathy towards our sin, a lack of repentance or contrition, perhaps we try to easily skirt out of our sin by saying that we're sorry, or I'm sorry, even worse, that you feel that way, but never actually asking God, would you reveal sin? Would you break my heart over sin? Would you show me what it is that I have done. I know that it is. I know that I'm imperfect. I know that I'm broken. I know that I'm in need. Show me, God, what I have done. Break my heart over it. Humble me before you. When we don't do these things, the real issue is not figuring out how to start repenting again, but to wonder whether or not we have ever repented in the first place. See, one of the reasons we may be having a hard time repenting on a regular basis is because we have never repented in the first place. See, this kind of diet of repentance or rhythm of repentance 
comes through the life of a Christian, and a Christian is one who has repented to God. A Christian is one who has confessed their sin and confessed the lordship of Jesus. This is what we learn in the scriptures, that when we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, that that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. This is the initial moment of repentance. And then through that, through that life, then we take on a life of repentance. Church, hear me well. I don't mean to suggest that a Christian is not one who is depressed or melancholy or regularly battles apathy and, and the tensions and pangs and challenges emotionally and relationally with God in this, in this world. We, we do struggle in those ways. I struggle in those ways. But rather, what, what I am suggesting is that the one reason we may find ourselves without the ability to repent is because we are without the Holy Spirit. See, the truth is, I have a hard heart and so do you. I am stubborn and so are you. I refuse to change and so do you. But the beauty of the gospel is that in Christ, he doesn't just make our heart a little bit better. He gives us a new heart. Can I get an amen on that one? That's really good news. He takes my heart of stone. And here's what he does. Because we need to go to Ezekiel because Ezekiel delivered some bad news for us. Let's give him a chance to speak some words of life over us. Ezekiel chapter 36. Again, these are the words of God. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone. Editorially, I will remove the hard heart. I'll remove the impenitent heart. I'll remove the stubborn heart. I'll remove the heart that is unwilling to change. I'll remove the heart that's unwilling to ask hard questions. I'll I'll remove the heart that doesn't want to be exposed. I'll remove the heart that feels ashamed and shame every single day. I'll remove that heart and from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. See, in Christ, the hard and impenitent heart is taken away. And by grace, through faith, we get a new heart. A heart which is sensitive to God's leading and malleable in his hands. Which again, means not that we have new emotions, but we are a new self. We receive a new identity in Christ. This new self is granted to us by grace when we first repent of sin and confess the lordship of Jesus. And this then becomes the pattern and rhythm of repentance on a daily basis. And we do this, and we must do this because a day is coming. A day when God will set all things to right. A day when righteousness will be fully rewarded. And a day when evil will be fully judged. God's forbearance and his patience will end and his wrath will be revealed. And so every day, church, we need to live in light of this future reality. The way we do that is through repentance. Repentance is the way we rehearse eternity. It's the way that we continually live within the new self and live animated by the beats of that new heart See, God is coming and he will be kind, but he also will be judged. In Christ, we have found the one who is both loving and just, gracious and true, kind and judge. He is all of those things. And so Paul reveals this epic duality of of Jesus' nature, the one who gives us this new heart. 
that in the day of the Lord that this will be revealed. Romans chapter 3, verse 22 and following. For there is no distinction for all who sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. In the most miraculous of graces, Jesus is revealed to be the propitiation or the wrath bearer. This is ultimately why we can have joy in the coming of the Lord, is because Jesus will take our judgment. Jesus takes our wrath for us. He takes our judgment for us. This is something that we'll have to consider more next week, but when we are not in Christ, we are under the wrath of God. And on the day of judgment, his wrath will come because his patience has run out. We would not have taken his delay as kindness, but as entitlement. But in Christ, when this patience and forbearance runs out in in this day of the Lord, in this day of wrath, we are protected because Christ has has borne the wrath of God for us. And when we are in Christ, when we know this is what he has done, when we know this is who Jesus is, when we know what he has accomplished for us by grace, through faith, by his mercy, through his kindness, when we know this is what Christ has done, we demonstrate and live within this new self by daily and moment by moment repenting of our sin. We would ask that we would see our sin and we would have sorrow over our sin, that ultimately that we would understand God's heart more and more, that we would hate our sin, that we would confess our sin, that we'd have shame for our sin, and that ultimately we would turn from our sin and towards God. See, all of this repentance is made possible because our God is eternally kind to us in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this. We worship you for it. Father, make us a church, a people of repentance who regularly, moment by moment, don't just simply say that we're sorry for the things that we struggle with, but ultimately, God, we confess sin and we would repent of sin so that we might learn to walk humbly in accordance with your kindness towards us through your forbearance and patience ultimately demonstrated in Jesus. I pray this for my sisters. Encourage them this week, Father, to walk in repentance. I pray this for my brothers. Encourage them this week to walk in repentance. And even now, as perhaps one of them is thinking, I don't want to tell anyone about this. I don't want to confess this. I don't want to repent of this. Perhaps even in this moment, God, sin seems so lovely to them, they are unwilling to let go. With the power of your Holy Spirit, call them and draw them to repentance. Give them the gift of repentance, I pray. Father, that they might walk in righteousness and enjoy life that is truly like a life that is marked by your kindness. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.